have the privilege of introducing Enoch Kuo, who is uh, finishing up his PhD on, uh, at Princeton, uh, Princeton University in the Religious Studies program with, a, with an emphasis on the study of the political philosophy of Frederick Schleiermacher, which as we are about to, uh, we were about to be introduced to, uh, is an under is a, a very understudied, and I'm sure as he'll emphasize, a very understudied aspect of this complex figure that we all have a complex relationship to, Sir Frederick Schleiermacher. Um, uh, Enoch uh, told me uh, before we uh, before this introduction uh, that he he has the uh, uh, interesting story of coming from a, uh, a Chinese house church tradition and has slowly migrated his way over to Presbyterianism. We don't know if that's the end of his journey, like his namesake. Uh, he might be translated, translated up into the, uh, to the, to the heavenly uh, tradition that uh, we haven't discovered yet. He has likewise, like his namesake, migrated at Princeton University for about 300 years. He uh, 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 not quite. Uh, he's been at Princeton for 15. You've done all your degrees. Thir- 13 there. years. 13 years. Okay. He's done all his degrees there. And so uh, he's uh, just about to leave uh, uh, his intellectual homeland and, and, and move on. So without further ado, it's my privilege to introduce uh, the very soon doctor. <laughs> he not good. Thank you very much for uh, having me here. Uh, it's always weird to have to follow your uh, potential advisor, and so we'll see how this goes. Uh, so I'm here to talk a little bit about Friedrich Schleiermacher um, as a political theologian. Um, what I mean by that term is that uh, instead of paying attention to his life or to his work through the lens of epistemology, which is usually what is done, uh, Schleiermacher is usually read as sort of the first post-Kantian theologian working in the aftermath of the first critique, um, and so, you know, there's a lot of work on epistemology, metaphysics, and those sort of implications for the understanding of, oh, how do you know God if God is unknowable? Uh, but the a very different angle uh, I want to say that we can take is to pay attention to him through the lens of ethical and political theory. And this actually makes a lot more sense because that's what he himself was most concerned with. Uh, his first student essays that we sort of have records of was a commentary on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, in which he argued that monarchy was an unreasonable institution because you couldn't have friends. And so because a monarch couldn't have a true friend, therefore it couldn't be a true uh, sort of expression of human reason. Um, He would later change his views and become a monarchist toward the sort of second half of his life. Um, But basically, uh, you know, he had notes on uh, an essay on Plato and Aristotle's conception of state sort of comparing them, uh, sort of had notes on a theory of contract and the notion, the, the rise of coercive rights, and uh, pretty much worked on ethics for most of his life. This is a to- on top of his very active political activity, so I don't know how familiar people are with Schleiermacher's biography, but uh, he, as with many young people in his time, was very excited by the French Revolution, uh, was very interested in it, very inspired in it fell in among a bunch of what are known as the early German romantics, um, who sort of tried to forge a sort of different third path between sort of conservative and liberal politics at that time, and then most of whom sort of went conservative before they got older. And Schleiermacher is maybe the one person who made it to uh, middle age and sort of systematized some of their political uh, insights. and uh, he was involved in just actually a lot of political activity in the middle of his life. So he 
uh, preached political sermons advocating for sort of the sort of a union of Germany. So sort of one of the people who came up with the idea that Germany should be a nation uh, that is, should be united among the German peoples, not just Prussia. Uh, he sort of drilled in a militia, was involved in a sort of conspiracy to try to get, he, he was on a sort of secret espionage mission to the king in exile after uh, Napoleon took over uh, the place to sort of try to get the king to call for a general revolt actually against the French troops. Uh, he sort of was really fascinated about it and came up with a little secret code to send his messages to his friends that was too complicated for anyone to follow except himself. Uh, he, was a, he was a sort of a editor of a political newspaper and was so controversial that actually he was charged, almost charged with treason and uh, uh, was forced to was forced to uh, resign his editorship by the king uh, and was banned from teaching on political topics for an entire decade. So even though he actually started lecturing on politics far before Hegel uh, did, uh, you know, very often we only remember the legacy of Hegel's lectures on philosophy of right. Uh, but part of that is because Slaughter was forbidden <laughs> from actually teaching on the subject because he's deemed to be too dangerous to the state uh, at the time. And so the king constantly tried to, uh, was contemplating trying to shut him down somehow, but he was too popular a preacher and teacher uh, that the king thought there's no way he could do so without actually uh, causing a revolt, uh, that the very revolt that he wanted to stop. What I find interesting about Slarmacher, and I think what uh, we should find interesting about him today, is that he represents a sort of different strain of response to the French Revolution. One in which the politics uh, is actually, and he was a head of a, a political party uh, of reform at that sort of time that you know, didn't, wouldn't, was not fully successful in his time, um, though it was very influential. And the failure of the sort of uh, his successors to carry out the reform um, is sometimes linked to triggering the, the, the cause of the eight, one of the causes of the 1848 uh, revolution, where because the reform movement sort of hit its uh, sort of stalled out. Um, the liberal liberals began to think that revolution is the only the only approach. Uh, is that he put the importance of the unit, the visible unity of the church, actually, as one of the key key um, post revolutionary political moves that uh, Christians need to be engaged in during the time. And this actually goes hand in hand with his nationalist vision for the nation. So my goal today is a little bit to try to speak a little bit about that and sort of highlight what he was doing uh, so that we can, uh, I guess, you know, reflect and think about how, what, what, this, what this might mean or say uh, to us today, what ways we might disagree with his judgments and what parts might actually still be fruitful for our consideration. So very short, um, what, what does one get out of a quote-unquote political theological reading of Slarmacher? I want to suggest that uh, we get a creative attempt that he gives to offer a different way of making sense of church-state relations in the aftermath of the Reformation. And you know, one way to think about this is uh, he has to kind of invent a new theory of state in, in order to do this, uh, a nationalist theory of state. Um, if you think about classical theories, which are usually focused around perfection, uh, you, know, you have a, maybe this is like way oversimplified, but you have a a vision of the state as the, the true place to pursue the highest good in which all the 
which includes the goods of religion, and in which a concept of an establishment is going to make a lot of sense. Uh, and then, by contrast, you have the rising sort of liberal philosophies of state, which uh, are typically more limited in their nature, trying to abstract away from debates about the sort of final end and sort of debates over it to which one may be doing, uh, and focuses on freedom and the kind of sort of a negative, sort of the negative liberties, which sort of can ground uh, life together, uh, usually advocating for some kind of separation of church from state. And what you get with Schleiermacher is you actually get a kind of a, of a perfectionist polity with an argument for the separation of church from state, um, which is you know, maybe something that we don't normally uh, imagine today. And uh, part, of, part of how he gets this is he thinks it's partially the task of Christian political philosophy to actually rethink the nature of the state in light of Christ. And so that uh, in terms of thinking through uh, the politics of his age, a lot of the older political theories were still too pagan in form and also too uh, responsive to the dynamics of the city-state uh, in particular, rather than the sort of mod the arising sort of what we would now call the nation-state, uh, which are coming at the time. And so there's a world of difference between the city-state and the kind of sort of multi-ethnic, multinational uh, conglomerates uh, organized around the central government either confederate or federations um, that sort of characterize a modern nation state. Um, and at the same time, he is also very concerned with conditions for the evangelical witness of the church. So to, under the sort of terms of, you know, in, in his own native Prussia, the, the king was the head of the church and pretty much ran it uh, in, in various ways. And although some kings would be less activistic about their involvement in the church affairs, the one that he was most engaged with, uh, Frederick William III, uh, saw himself as sort of defender and protector of the church and was quite active in trying to uh, meddle from Sarmacher's perspective in its affairs, um, sort of advocating for the union of the Reformed and Lutheran uh, branches, which actually Sarmacher also advocated for, but on very different grounds, um, and in sort of advocating for uh, trying to sort of force everyone to adopt his liturgy that he wrote uh, for, for the church, which Sarmacher uh, was, was, was a great cause of um, distrust and stress for Saramacher as he tried to lead the church in resisting that. Um, so in what follows, I want to just briefly speak about maybe three things. Firstly, just the speeches, uh, which is probably his most well-known work uh, for many people today, uh, against the backdrop of the, of the Re French Revolution. I want to talk a little bit about his political theory, and I want to then final, like close out with a few comments on uh, the vision for the church and its visible unity. And the speeches, uh, which have often been read in religious studies and theology as a kind of methodology treatise, uh, actually really should be seen as an intervention into the debates in the post-revolutionary uh, era about sort of the future of politics in Europe. Um, you know, people may be familiar with the definition of religion. It's neither thinking nor doing, but feeling. And sort of now you have all sorts of debates about whether or not theology is actually intellectual or not, or it's about experience or whatnot. Um, but really, the, in its original context, read in light of the sort of the post-revolutionary debates, um, you can sort of see that it's actually an intervention into early German romantic thought about the future of the revolution and why it failed in France and what the reform movement might look like in Germany. Basically, in a nutshell, the argument of the Romantics is that the revolution failed in France because it focused too much on the sort of legal externals of freedom 
rather than the formation of a culture of freedom, um, which is going to involve sort of aesthetic and moral formation, the formation of Bildung. Um, and Schleiermacher's innovation, or sort of intervention in that debate, was to say, hey, this building you guys are looking for, that you guys are looking for in sort of art, in sort of literature and culture, actually is just an expression of religion. And the thing that you, you want to be looking for is not avant-garde artists, but actually a revival of religion, and especially Christianity in particular. Uh, you've missed this fact because you've sort of seen the corruptions of religion all around you, and you've sort of mistaken it as its essence. But if you actually pay attention to its essence, you'll realize that what is going on and what uh, sort of the what the world needs right now is this revival of Christianity and this offers a different way to think about how church and state interact and how political reform takes place um, so his uh, he, I don't know how familiar people are with like sort of early German romanticism uh, as a political movement but there, there are many there are many sort of resonances with kind of uh, sort of, uh, they're the ones who sort of looked back to the medieval age in some ways, uh, in some ways to sort of say, hey, there's some really good stuff here. So for instance, Novalis, who's one of these German romantics, wrote an essay called like Pollen or the King and the Queen, and part of the importance of the monarch and sort of as a cultural symbol for the unity of the people, and sort of like focusing on the ceremonial dimensions of the monarchy as a sort of important political uh, aspect rather than just a, the political governmental forms. Um, and so Slarmacher is sort of a picking up on but modifying this and sort of taking this in a, a more Christian way. Um, and by all accounts, his intervention among this immediate circle is actually quite well received, though not exactly in a way himself uh, he probably hoped. Um, over the next couple years, Novalis, Friedrich Schlegel, uh, even Schelling uh, would all actually start taking him very seriously on a turn of religion. So there was a sort of turn to religion among the early German romantics after Schleiermacher publishes the speeches uh, in 1799. So one example of this is Novalis's Christianity or Europe, which is this really interesting uh, sort of narrative, political, theological manifesto about the f possible future of Europe um, centered around a new revived form of sort of Catholic Christianity. Um, the, its media context is exactly a response to Kant's perpetual peace, which is sort of this uh, maybe a classic document of liberal internationalism, perhaps uh, one could say, which sort of presented this vision of possible peace among nations centered around a universal republican sort of government uh, structured by nations. And um, by contrast, what you get in Novalis is actually this vision where not maybe of a structure of international law, but a structure of a renewed world Christian church in which uh, the world would be sort of under, quote-unquote, one sovereign without great worldly possessions, again, in some way. I mean, so there's, he's looking back to the medieval period and uh, writing sort of gives us narrative about how there was one unified Christianity, how sort of reforms happened, transformations happened, it sort of grew corrupt, sort of narration of history from the medieval up to sort of the French Revolution of sorts with the conclusion, quote, that Christianity must again become alive and active and again form a visible church without regard to national boundaries. It will and must come this sacred age of eternal peace where the new Jerusalem will be the capital, unquote. 
So uh, we don't actually get to see Novala, uh, sort of Slarmacher's response to these sort of um, this sort of turn to Catholicism among the early German Romantics until a couple of years later when he publishes the second edition of the speeches. And there, there's a really fascinating, uh, you know, if in the first edition, he sort of talks about religion in general and sort of advocates for Christianity, he sort of becomes a lot more explicit about where his allegiances lie in the second edition. And I, I think I have like an excerpt of the, the quotes in the sort of booklet where he basically adds a new epilogue where he clarifies that uh, Protestantism and Catholicism are the dominant antitheses in Western Christendom right now. And everyone needs to consider to which side they belong. Um, so those culture despisers that he had originally written to, uh, who had once maybe shone brightly, and, uh, but now had since thrown themselves into Catholicism. So Novalis had sort of uh, you know, taken his Catholic turn and literally went crazy. crazy. And then uh, Friedrich Slegel sort of, uh, sort of converts the Catholic Church as well as Schelling. Um, and then, you know, I think Carl Schmitt has a famous essay on, on, on uh, political romanticism, which actually tries to track sort of this, the Catholic turn of some of these romantics afterwards and sort of concludes that they're actually politically impotent. Um, but, you know, so he kind of agrees with Slarmacher in a weird way. Um, and Slarmacher sort of concludes, you know, that this is a mistaken turn in their, you know, it's, it's actually like in light of a lot of this, you know, uh, young Protestant evangelical intellectual-like people flipping over to the Catholic Church. It's reading this, some of Slarmacher's quotes here is oddly prescient, uh, sort of inappropriate for those who are proud of the Reformation tradition. Um, what they're looking for, Slarmacher writes, it's idolatry. The highest they seek... <laughs> is superstition in church and priesthood, sacrament, absolution, salvation. What they want from Catholicism is not even what he thinks is good about Catholicism, but it's corruption. Uh, and um, in advance to this, uh, you know, what's, what's so, what's, uh, what is, is, is it really true that there's no religion in Protestantism? Um, do the heroes of the Reformation impress any uncorrupted mind with godliness, with godlessness? and not with a truly Christian piety? Is Leo X more pious than Luther? Is Loyola's enthusiasm holier than Zinzendorf's? Um, and so, uh, yeah, Salamanca really sets out this vision for a renewed Protestantism. And uh, what does that look like? Well, in the third edition, fortunately, of the speeches, sort of then published in 1821, uh, he adds a sort of series of sort of commentary notes, so explanations to the speeches. Uh, where basically on each of the speeches, now there's like a section where he comments on what he, what he had said when he was much younger. And basically in, in those comments, you get a lot more of detail of just what he means exactly by uh, the sort of vision of reform that he's looking like. So one of the key speeches that is often overlooked in, in, in reading Slarmacher is the fourth speech on the sociality of religion or religion <coughs> sociality where he emphasizes that religion has its own form of sociality. And basically, uh, this is important because this is going to be a form of sociality that he thinks of as independent from the kind of sociality that characterizes the state. And so it's important for the church to actually try to manifest this sociality in its governmental and sort of uh, life. Um, and the particular form of governmental structure that he turns out, turns out to be a, a real advocate for uh, is the Presbyterian system of government, um, which he has then since by that time become an advocate 
a big advocate for. Um, and so what he means by that is sort of, uh, you know, local churches of elders organized around presbyteries and then sort of with a big synod sort of at the top in a sort of a representative form. So of these German romantics who were inspired by Herder to seek an alternative to the conservative and liberal political philosophies becoming increasingly dominant in their day, Schleiermacher alone, as I said, would have the opportunity to develop what had previously only been fragments, aphorisms, occasional essays, which criticized the developing liberal reform movement into a mature political philosophical system. But a proper understanding of the contours of Schleiermacher's politics would be incomplete without paying attention to the ways in which it fundamentally rejects the way in which liberal political philosophy purports to deal with the problem of confessional pluralism in the aftermath of the Reformation. Uh, the key moves of Schleiermacher's mature political philosophy, his critique of the empty formalism of liberal rights discourse, his proposal for a more economically sensitive alternative, his rejection of constitutionalism, and the significance of the separation of powers um, in favor of an alternative formulation of Republican liberty, which sets the concept of nation at the center of the state uh, must be understood in light of his distinctively Protestant interpretation of modern politics. Namely, the state doesn't need to abstract away from the sort of concrete goods uh, that characterize the sort of the being together um, if you don't have to assume that you have to do so in order to avoid confessional conflicts. And so one of the big pushes for Schleiermacher is hey, the church needs to really seek this visible unity if you want to have a meaningful established church without the established church being just subordinate to concerns about who the heck is in charge and who's, whose church is going to get established by the king. Um, okay, so the, in, in the sort of written version of the paper, I go into a little bit more detail on sort of try to highlight some of the political theory in particular. The main point there is just to sort of point out uh, a little bit how... Uh, how very different <laughs> the, pol the politics can look like if you try to work things out this way. Um, I will just give a, a little bit of a, a sort of a bird's eye overview at this moment, um, but I'm happy to say more in the Q&A uh, if people want to talk more about it. But one, one big thing is uh, he has a positive or more communal theory of rights. So rights are not grounded in sort of abstract conceptions of persons. Um, or declarations of principles, but they're determinately found in the roles that individuals are situated in within the division of labor. And so when you're claiming a right, you're actually claiming sort of something that you're owed on a basis of the role you play in a particular community, uh, rather than sort of a, a realm of freedom which, wherein you know, people have, are not supposed to interfere. Um, it's a kind of political economic critique of liberal formalism and the inability of liberalism to actually live up to its own values. Uh, sort of there's a, there's a story here about the influence of Fichte and sort of the critique of the ability of the liberal state to actually live up to its defense of liberal citizenship because it doesn't take seriously enough the political economic basis of you know, what, what are the basic material conditions which allow someone to actually exercise the rights of a citizen. And unless the state actually is concerned actively with preserving that, um, it's not going to be able to uh, actually have citizens <laughs> who, can, who, can act, who can exercise it in a sort of free and democratic manner. And uh, so there's a really strong, Fichte offers a very strong argument against free trade on that basis, uh, precisely because free trade will always make the sort of material conditions for citizenship um, actually dependent upon market flows and dynamics that are not actually under the control of the nation. 
And so any nation will be unable to fully guarantee the rights of its citizens to actually have those rights unless it can actually guarantee in some way its material economic basis. So Sarmacher sort of backs down a little bit from uh, Fichte's version of the critique, but these are kind of um, concerns that he also has in mind when he's working out his theory of right. Um, how this theory of right works out ends up with a very different theory of property. So, for instance, uh, one, of the, one of his interesting insistences is that the, the existence of private property actually always coexists with a, some conception of property in common. Uh, one example, this is how I actually originally got interested in Sarmager, was uh, the existence of scientific instruments. So if you think about how a per private property regime tries to deal with questions of possession and belonging and contract, it's very often almost every question is ultimately reduced to who the heck owns it and therefore has the right to uh, use it in the way they want. Uh, but if you think of things like scientific instruments, uh, it's really hard to think about how the question of ownership actually makes sense of what's going on there. Right? In some way, it has to be some kind of quote-unquote common property in order to, it, it, to serve as a basis of common cognition um, to sort of give us knowledge of. Um, so Slarmacher uh, sort of Tries to, tries to make this claim that actually our ability to recognize one another as sort of possessing something of our own also actually comes concomitant with a recognition of something that we're, we share in the way that we may play complementary roles within a division of labor. And so whenever we have a claim towards something that is mine or yours, there's actually always a claim to what is ours as well and alongside that. So uh, it's actually a quite complicated argument in conversation with Fichte, and so I'm happy to talk more about that. But uh, there's a, that's a, it's, a very, it's a slightly different way of thinking about collective property than, say, a more traditional socialist tradition, which will think of it, or, or sort of even liberal tradition, where we think of private versus pri public property, typically in terms of private mean owned by a private citizen, public mean owned by the state. Um, this is like a non-statist conception of collective property. Uh, in which basically the fact that we have organized collectives working together all, always involves a sort of sphere of collectivity in which even though things are administered by individuals, um, they, there's a kind of common claim uh, by them, by others in that collectivity by virtue of the role that they play in it. So as a result of this, you don't end up with a kind of labor capital divide uh, because labor and capital comes from a divide between those who have you know, one piece of private property, and they can be just their bodies, and those who have other things, namely capital, um, and therefore, you know, those who own the means of production, for instance. Um, so there's a kind of view of corporate reform, perhaps, that, you know, if one wanted to speculate from where Slarmacher is at to go toward today, it's like less maybe unions and sort of the attempts to collectivize the means of production, and more maybe the co-op movement, uh, co-op movement, and sort of ways to try to think about how it is those who are themselves engaged in the work who actually have some degree of sharing in the uh, ownership or the rights over that work. Um, one, yes, so uh, another way this kind of works out in terms of just collective, uh, the way in which um, it's different from sort of traditional liberal pol pol political philosophical notions is, you know, you don't get a, you don't get a right to bodily autonomy in Slayermacher. Uh, because you don't, the body is not the fundamental piece of private property that you first have, which is the necessary means for the exercise of your freedom. But by virtue of the fact that we actually train and sort of shape our bodies to fit into a particular division of labor, there is a part in, in some sense in which the collective has shaped you, in, even in your very body, and that you actually owe 
uh, the community something by virtue of that. So um, uh, y you don't have, there's some sense in which you are not entirely your own. Um, a lot of this can sound kind of scary when you think about you know, the state or something like that, but uh, I think a, a very easy way to think about some of this collective, collective property stuff is just to think about marriage as an institution. Uh, when Soslarmacher is giving like very concrete language to you know, your body is not your own, uh, no longer in, some, in various ways. Um, and the fact that even when we are in a domestic situation, the, the property actually, and this is actually recognized in law, is seen as collectively owned um, and then um, only sort of separated out when you have, uh, if you have a divorce ceremony, for instance, which you have to, in which you actually have to figure out what is mine or yours in a more specific way. Uh, so Slarmacher thinks that this kind of thing that we see in marriage can actually be seen in broader and other relations in society as well, um, other corporate relations. Um, or another aspect is he has a sort of anti-constitutionalist and anti-sovereign -so conception of the state. Anti-constitutionalist in that he doesn't think that sort of stating your principles and sort of putting them out there on a piece of paper does very much for actually attaining uh, those rights. Uh, sort of Republican freedom is not to be gained, grounded in sort of putting out a constitution which sets out the proper forms and the separation of powers. Uh, or, or sort of fundamental social contract that's supposed to sort of ground a consent of the governed to those who govern. Um, but in fact, but instead, uh, what Republican freedom consists in is actually just the reciprocal and mutual joint efforts of a people and their government to discern the trajectory of national development. And by virtue of this, the Constitution is going to constantly be undergoing a sort of process of evolution and change as the nation sort of grows and develops, and the sort of ways in which the people relate to their government uh, changes and develops. Um, freedom and is, is not found in this sort of protected space to act voluntarily in sort of approved, uh, in sort of a, in ways what, which, which is up to one's own discretion, uh, with sociality grounded in sort of consent and enforcement of sort of free agreements but rather the mutual recognition of underlying unconscious relations that sort of gets recognized and advanced and becomes more determinant by being made explicit and sort of put into an idea form, which can then sort of serve as a basis of unification, uh, of greater unity and sort of recognition and even legal mm -hmm. pronouncements. Uh, maybe one way to put it is to borrow Charles mm -hmm. Taylor's, you know, this is like Taylor's expressive freedom as opposed to sort of a libertarian freedom uh, view that's often pre prevalent in sort of uh, theories of uh, sort of accounts of rights and uh, discourse. So uh, this is all like grounded in kind of a very innovative account of collective action, which sort of doesn't locate acts of state in just a person of a sovereign or sort of a, a sovereign uh, or individual or body, but actually in some form of cooperative uh, in a cooperative sort of co-action of multiple, multiple parties acting together. So this is, is this a different theory of action, uh, which is, is trying to adapt to post, um, actually really just, it's, it is really like post-Cartesian, post-Newtonian conceptions of, uh, of, of action, of multi-agential causality. Uh, so that's also an interesting way to think about it. The, the way in which, think of it as an alternative to the kind of individual versus structure sort of dialogue that is very often sort of prevalent in, in our discourse today where we have this problem where either you can talk about individual agency and we have moral categories to talk about that 
or you talk about structures and it's very hard to talk about individ how individual responsibility or how responsibilities gets attributed um, to sort of structures. So what Slaughter does is he tries to develop a conceptual vocabulary of collective action that sort of isn't entirely one or the other in which every individual action is to some degree social, but every social action is made by the action of individuals. And finally, uh, there's, he has a very interesting theory of state development and constitutional change, as I sort of mentioned, um, but sort of the history and sort of the tradition of a nation as it develops from uh, sort of a small people group or city-state forms into sort of the modern nation-state, which encompasses a lot more. Uh, what's interesting about this is, uh, so I've hinted, uh, I didn't say this explicitly. Like one of the, one of the ways in which the theory of rights would be really different because it's not grounded in abstract personhood. It's the idea of equality is not too big in his thought, uh, because as you can imagine, when you have different people embedded in part, particular division of labor, not everyone's doing the same thing, and by virtue of that, you're going to have different a differentiated set of claims uh, upon the community and upon one another, depending on sort of the roles that one may play in that. Um, and in a similar way, uh, he doesn't think the rise of the modern nation state is actually uh, should be thought of in terms of the rise of equality. Um, in fact, he actually thinks most of the liberal claims to it are just empty <laughs> because the modern nation state is actually, in his reading, uh, necessarily hierarchical by virtue of the way in which what, what it's going to take for uh, peoples to actually come together from, in, from different people groups to get together into one sort of polity, uh, and that the, the, the task is try to sort of make it less unequal or more uh, reflective of a sort of better mutually recognitive um, equilibrium of sorts. Um, so unlike sort of liberal theories of state, which see the foundation of modern state as sort of this, uh, the modern nation state as sort of this achieve, achievement of, uh, of like equality and liberty, which then apologists have to sort of have some problems looking back on and sort of saying, well, what about the slavery thing? What about this racism thing? How do we make sense of that? Is that just an uh, accident of history that we're going to progressively get, get rid of? Um, or was it just actually constitutive? Or um, I mean, what was this, is this sort of accidental to the project? Uh, Slaramacher actually sees, to some extent, in his reading of history, some of these inequalities as built in to the modern nation-state project. And so one of the things that needs to be attained is precisely constitutional reform and change because the existing forms reflect a particular stage in national development, which need to be overcome with future uh, increased national um, clarification as people become more aware of the ways we are interconnected with one another in sort of economic labor and sort of exchange so as to be, be, be able to tell better stories about the ways in which we are connected uh, to one another. So. As one can see, this is like a really different, I've tried to give a little bit of a sense of some of this, like this is really different than sort of your Kantian or even, even Hegelian sort of uh, theories of state. Uh, just try to give a, a hint of it. Um, I think it's, it's actually woefully sort of a tragedy that Slaremacher hasn't been studied um, as a political theorist. Um, he's sort of up there along with Kant, Fichte, and Hegel, the engagement with all these sort of issues. And we have tons of books on German idealist political philosophy, but we don't have anything on Slaremacher. Um, and I think he's especially interesting for Christians precisely because this is just one half of his project. Uh, the half of his project, which is trying to formulate a positive perfectionist conception of the state that allows you to make sense of his dynamics in a way where you can actually start imagining how a more positive conception of the church 
can also line up with it. So you can have an established church and have uh, sort of churches. Uh, t- the state doesn't have to abstract away from the religion. It can express religious themes um, based on public opinion and the degree to which it is sort of prevalent in, in a particular nation, um, but does so in a way which is not going to co-opt then what he takes to be the importance of the freedom of the church. So I want to conclude with just a few comments on that. Um, which I, this is one of the parts I think that's like very exciting to me uh, and close to my heart. Um, I think the, the, the sort of, the sort of um, innovations in Saramax's political philosophy give him a different way of um, envisioning the sort of freedom and unity of the church that attempts to escape the sort of medieval back and forth between kings and popes. And so I think this is one of the, the, the really interesting insights that Saramacher has into sort of reading the sort of medieval tradition that's, that sort of is in the background of the Reformation debates. Namely, um, one of the reasons to maybe, in, in a weird way, Slarmacher can be seen as being an advocate of the, pap- of the papal reform movement. Namely, in the sort of 11th century, you had this problem where the church was basically subject to whoever was the political authority at that time, whoever was the landlord, basically got to run the church in the way he wanted. And with Gregory VII in the 11th century and sort of the Dictatus Papi and sort of some of the reforms that sort of are at the heart of modern papacy, uh, sort of the vows for celibacy, sort of the investiture controversies and sort of the insistence on on canonical election, um, a lot of this stuff can be seen as an attempt to separate the sort of clerical hierarchy from the dynamics of property, from uh, basically the sort of laws of property and inheritance that basically will structure um, most of the state and what, what, what it runs with and therefore would make you know this is this ongoing debate over the medieval church between who gets the right to appoint the bishops uh, is it the pope by virtue of the fact that he is the spiritual leader or is it the king by virtue of the fact that he is uh, the landlord um, that, you know, the, that the bishop is a landlord um, and and uh, you know, what Gregory VII was seeking is what was you know, referred to as the libertas ecclesiae, the liberty of the church. And it was attempted to be accomplished by creating a church hierarchy insulated from the secular dynamics of ordinary life. And the administrative reforms of the papacy, coupled with the rediscovery of Aristotle and the conception of naturalistic politics, would give rise to sort of this rivalry between kings and popes, uh, which the Protestant Reformation uh, would sort of come in and sort of decisively shift the power uh, struggle over to the size of the kings rather than uh, the popes. One way of reading and looking, making sense of Slarmacher is his, his reading of the Reformation's political theological significance is that it's a direct attempt to try to provide an alternative to the papal reform movement. Like Gregory VII, Slarmacher affirms the libertas ecclesiae and seeks to establish a church on grounds independent of the dynamics of property and wealth. Uh, but instead of seeing his liberty as grounded in a clerical government, that needs to mediate the faith of the laity through a class of individuals set apart from lay life, Slarmacher insists on a Protestant conception of the church in which the distinction between priest and laity is only to serve the occasion and cannot be permanent. That's a, a quote from the speeches. So ministers of word and sacrament are not to be seen as fundamentally, fundamentally set apart from the persons that they serve, and the authority they exercise is a function of their ability to play their role within an ordered ministry. This is not a rejection of church constitutions and the church taking out institutional forms, but um, basically an attempt to sort of ground what is the dynamic 
and why is it, how do we make sense of church leadership within that space? And uh, I, if I had more time, would say more about uh, sort of the particular the way he sort of works this out because what he does is he ends up taking the account of Republican liberty that he develops in his political philosophy to talk about the relationship between magistrates and citizens and actually adapts it for thinking about church government as well. And he thinks this gives him an alternative to sort of this, uh, the conception of freedom that the Catholic Church requires in the, the requirement of a clerical hierarchy uh, to do things. And so um, basically, uh, this is what lies behind Slaughtermacher's advocacy for the quote unquote Presbyterian form of government, and which was the center one of well, a lot of his reform efforts in the state during his time. One of the reasons why sort of the, politi the politics of Slyermacher, I think, are very much often illegible to our modern secular age is that it's a politics that's centered on the church. It was seen as too liberal by conservatives because he wanted to democratize the church. It was seen as way too conservative by, by the liberals because he was happy with just democratizing the church. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, Slyermacher thought that actually this is actually one of the key moves that needed to happen in order for... Uh, sort of the history of modernity to sort of move on from what was going on um, and the sort of forces that were unleashed in the French Revolution. So he and the Romantics, uh, if you sort of look at, I think I have some more quotes from Novalis in, in the written version of the paper, um, are celebrating the French Revolution in part because it disestablished the church and sort of allowed, sort of opened up the, the space for it, to, to, for, for the church to rediscover perhaps um, its own sort of sense of unity and purpose apart from the dynamics of dynastic secession and basically who was going to be the head of the state um, in order to establish what religion is going in part. Um, this sort of finds itself in a sort of expression in his mature dogmatics. If you go to the Christian faith, you can sort of see uh, in his account of the power of the keys, for instance, uh, the, sort of the discussion of uh, the, the place of legislative and executive functions in the church, which will be a, a borrowing from his, his political theory. Um, and also uh, in his account of Christian unity and schism, um, namely that he believes there is such a thing as holy schism. Uh, if the church is actually founded on a false unity, it actually should separate. Um, and it's actually holy to do so. Uh, however, it should do so with this sort of desire and specification of what the conditions for re reunification could be. And the big challenge that he offers to the church of today is maybe we're really good at doing our own thing. Uh, so he looked at America as actually potentially a space where something like what he was envisioning was more possible. But he was very worried that it was becoming more shaped by individualism and market dynamics uh, in which churches would know very well how to split, but not very well how to gather together again. And so I think if I were to say there's a... Some, something that Slarmacher has to say for us today, I think it might be for uh, Christians to really consider to what extent their political witness, on one hand, has a sort of national um, sort of commitment to the nation and sort of to its development, but on the other hand, a commitment to pursuing the visible unity of the church in a serious way that isn't often uh, thought of as a part of uh, political engagement in our world today. So, thank you. If you enjoy this free audio from the Davenant Institute, 
Please like, subscribe and share. We invite you also to join our email list if you want to hear about upcoming events, new content or course offerings at Davenant Hall. Links are in the description.